Sorry about that. Amen. Let's breathe in grace. And love that. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. Uh, and if, I think, if you need a Bible, raise your hands. And uh, we're taking a break this week from the book of Colossians. And we will, I will actually pick up the series next week uh, on Colossians uh, chapter 3. And I want to encourage you to read Colossians. Just on your own. Just read the book and, you know, as many times as you can during the week. Just let it sink into you. It's, just, it's filled with wealth and riches. Let it soak into you. But today we have a special guest. His name is Lance Witt. Uh, Lance has been a pastor for 30 years. I mean, before I was born. I don't know. I mean, he's not that old. <laughs> pastor at a number of churches around the country, but uh, probably the most well-known. He's executive pastor at Saddleback a Community Church in California for a number of years. Teaching pastor there. And, uh, but for the last... You know, seven or eight years, he's, he's run a ministry called to Replenish, and what he does is he, uh, he pastors pastors and mentors them around the country, especially of large churches. And so he's got a, a tremendous wealth of experience, and uh, we became friends uh, with his wife, Jerry, and I a number of years ago, I guess four or five years ago. And uh, Lance is just a real special guy. I can tell you he's, 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 a, he's called a pastor's pastor, and for good reasons. Uh, Jerry and I joke around, when you're with Lance, you feel like you're having a vacation, because just kind of the guy that just oozes out love, you know, he's like a real, he's like a real pastor, you know, I, I'm with him, I'm thinking, what did I ever do becoming a pastor? This guy's a real pastor, you know, he just drips it, and uh, a joy to be around, and, uh, but we're very, very privileged and excited that he's here, that you get a chance to be exposed to Lance, and uh, so I want to invite you to give a, a warm new life welcome to Lance Witt. Well, thank you, and it really is an honor to get to be with you and to be able to share with you. I am so grateful for the opportunity, and um, you know, I've had the chance to kind of be aware and watch New Life and uh, love what God is doing in you and through you. And the last few years, I've had the chance to get to know Pete and Jerry and for us to build a bit of a friendship, and I, I tell you, I get to walk and work with pastors around the country and one of the things I respect so much about what you have in Rich and in Pete and Jerry is leaders who work so hard to live out what they're teaching you. You know, sometimes when you get to see people up close and personal, you know, sometimes maybe a disconnect, but wow, to see people who are so committed to actually walking it out in their life and seeing it lived out even in you. And so it's a gift for you guys to have leaders like that, right? And so we're grateful for them, and it's great for us to get to be here. I wish my wife, Connie, could be here. We've been married. We'll be married 36 years uh, this next month. I got married when I was seven. And so... Uh, but she, she's really the fun one. She's just so life-giving, unpretentious. We, we sometimes affectionately say about my wife, she's never had a private thought in her life. So what, kind of whatever comes to her mind, she says, and we have now entered into that glorious season called grandparenting. Anybody else? A grandparent in the room? Okay, I'm the only old guy here. So, uh, oh, I see a few of you. So someone told me, and I believe it's actually true, that grandparenting is God's reward for you not killing your kids. And, and I, I think that may be accurate, and we are certainly loving being in that season of life. Well, you have probably never heard the name Michael Plant, 
But he was America's most accomplished single-handed sailor, which meant that he had tremendous expertise at sailing and did it without any kind of crew. Well, he traveled over 100,000 miles in a sailboat. He uh, sailed around the world three different times. And in 1992, bought a state-of-the-art, high-tech, top-of-the-line sailboat and named it the Coyote. And he was going to take the Coyote on sort of a, 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 a voyage that would be around the world, a race, and it was going to start in France. And so he launches out of New York Harbor and on his way to France all by himself. Um, 11 days into his journey across the Atlantic, no radio communication. Nobody can get a hold of him. Now, this guy's an expert. He's a world-class um, salesman. And, and so he is, you know, people think, well, he, it's just weather. It's the, you know, waves. He's taking care of some equipment on the boat. Nobody's concerned, but repeated attempts to reach him and nothing. And the hours turn into a day, and a day turns into two and three. And by this time, people are really panicking and thinking something is desperately wrong. And so they deploy a search and rescue team. No sign of plant no sign of the coyote. It wasn't until 32 days after he left New York Harbor that a Greek tanker spots the coyote in the Atlantic and the coyote is upside down. Plant is nowhere to be found and would never be found. And when they come upon the sailboat, they discover that the 85-foot mast is pointed straight down in the cold waters of the Atlantic. All the sails are still there. All the rigging is in place. Um, the hole hasn't been penetrated. It really hasn't taken on water. Um, the rudders look operational. And it wasn't until they got to the keel that they really discovered what had happened. And what had happened is that the 8,400 pounds of ballast in the keel had separated from the boat. And when that happened, Plant was unable to navigate the seas. And it didn't matter at that point how good he was, how skilled he was. There was no way for him to navigate it because sailing is built on one fundamental principle. There always has to be more weight underneath the waterline than on top of it. So that no matter what comes, what storm, what waves, the boat would always be able to right itself. And when the ballast was gone, Plant had no chance of surviving. And here's the point. What ballast is to a sailboat, soul care is to the life of a Christian. Paying attention to what's underneath the waterline, what nobody else can see, is crucial for you to be able to navigate this thing called life. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. And to do so, I want to get us started by taking us to 3 John and the second verse in 3 John. If you have your Bible, you can open it there. If not, you can just look on the screen. But 3 John, verse 2, it's kind of an obscure verse in an obscure book of the New Testament and a verse that I never paid attention to for most of my Christian journey, but really means a lot to me now. And it says this, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. I'm especially intrigued by that last phrase, even as your soul is getting along well. If we could put the stethoscope of health up to the chest of a lot of people, we would discover that their souls are not getting along well. All the stress 
and the depression and dysfunction in relationships and anxiety and burnout are merely outward evidences that inwardly there is a battle that we are not winning. And for many years, I wasn't either. In fact, this whole issue of my soul and what was going on inside of my life and paying attention to my emotions or my interior journey was never even on my radar. And I'll tell you why. I grew up in a pretty good family, well provided for. My mom and dad were believers. We were loved. They stayed married. So in a lot of ways, I had tremendous advantage. But my dad's highest value was a strong work ethic and being responsible and achieving and performing. And so very early on in my journey, I developed a script that I lived by, and the script went like this. Work hard, do good, be responsible, and you'll be loved. And by the way, I transferred that also to my relationship with God. Work hard, do good, be responsible, and if you do it all just right, God will be pleased and God will love you. Well, when that is the script that you live by, and by the way, all of us have scripts that have been handed down to us. When that's the script that you live by, well, of course, you're going to focus all on your external behavior because acceptance and significance and love comes in what you do and in what you achieve. And that's the script I live from. I don't know if any of you have ever seen kind of a really bad movie called Bedazzled. Anybody seen it? Yeah, a few of you. It's called Bedazzled. Don't waste your money renting it, all right? But in the movie, um, the devil is played by Elizabeth Hurley, and she's having a conversation with the principal character named Brandon Fraser. And it's a principle about his, or it's a conversation about his soul. And the conversation is basically this. She wants him to give her his soul. And in exchange, she will give him seven wishes of anything he wants in his life. And so follow up with the conversation. Here's how it goes. He says to her, I can't give you my soul. And she says, well, what's the big deal? Have you ever seen your soul? Do you even know what it is? And he sort of stammers around and he says, well, of course, it's, you know, it's that, um, what's that thing that follows you around? To which she says, souls are overrated. They don't do anything for you. I mean, when is the last time your soul did anything for you? It's just like your appendix. You won't even miss it. And so he pauses for a moment and then he says, hey, if it's so useless, why do you want it so bad? And I think a lot of people would look at my life and they would conclude, wow, Lance, for a lot of years, you thought souls were overrated. And part of what I'm coming back to is this fundamental thing about the Christian life that the soul is the real you. It's the real me. It's the eternal me. You know, you could walk out of here today and you could be in an accident and they rush you to the hospital and have to amputate your arm. You would still be fundamentally you. You, You're not defined by a limb on your body. You could check into the hospital tomorrow and they could do an organ transplant on you, but you would still be fundamentally you. You'd have your soul because your soul isn't defined by a part of your body. I can testify, you can lose all of your hair and you're still you. Like You're not fundamentally any different. I, it, I still have my same soul. And the truth is someday for all of us, if the Lord tarries, 
Your heart's going to beat for the last time. You're going to take your last breath. They're going to pronounce you dead. They're going to put you in the ground. They're going to have a service for you. But we know above all people that the truth is you're not really dead. Because you have a soul, and you have a soul that's immortal and is going to live forever, and you're not defined by your body. But think about how much time you put in to taking care of this earthly, physical body that's going to someday wear out and die. I mean, you primp, clean, wash, shampoo, manicure, dress, comb, tuck, paint, exercise, all before 9 a.m. this morning for a body that's just not going to last. Doesn't it make sense then, if the soul is the real me, it's the eternal part of me, doesn't it make sense that that I would pay attention to what is going on inside of me? And so in these last few years, I've been trying to understand what it would look like to live from a healthy soul. And by the way, this has everything to do with living the Christian life and having impact with your life because... If you're not in a good place, if you're not living from a healthy place, your impact, your ministry, your service to God will always be limited. So let me give you a word picture that has been at least helpful for me. As you look up at this stage, every person in this room lives on two stages. You have a front stage and a back stage. And I like to say that the front stage is the public world of your life. Now, on the front stage, people notice you. It's where the spotlight shines on you. It's where you do what you do with skill. And by the way, it's where a lot of us find our identity because that's what gets applauded in our lives is what we do on the front stage. But you also have a backstage, just like this stage. Behind that curtain, there's a backstage. And the backstage is your private world. And here's what I know about a backstage. It's dark. It's usually messy. Nobody's allowed there. There's no spotlight there. There's no glory there. But I also know this. What happens on the backstage will always eventually leak out on the front stage. And the two are connected. And we're really comfortable with front stage conversations, right? We can talk about politics and weather and the economy and school and finances and sports. And in the church world, you know, talk about Worship services and small groups, all that feels very comfortable. It's not very threatening. But backstage conversations, not so much. I remember reading a story about John Wesley when he started what we would call small groups. He called them bands. And when these bands would get together during the week, when they got together, they always had a very defined kind of step-by-step curriculum. And every week, every small group started with the same question that they asked each other. And here's the question. How is it with your soul backstage? And I remember reading that story for the first time and thinking to myself, I would have no idea how to answer that question. I was so out of touch with my inner world, with my emotions, with my soul, that I wouldn't have had a clue how to begin to even answer that. And so I've spent the last few years trying to understand, how do you bring your soul back to life? How do you live from a healthy place? Well, let me give you four pillars that are becoming more and more um, a huge part of my own journey. So here's number one. And it's the issue of taking personal responsibility. No one else can do this for you. You can't delegate it. It's not up to your pastor or your spouse or your boss. If you are going to have a healthy soul, it's going to be because you own it 
and put yourself on a journey towards it. So there's this great passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30 where the Lord invites Israel into this life of blessing. And he says, if you'll return to me, if, if you'll come back to me, he says, I want to bless you. I'm gonna, I'll increase your number. I'll protect you from your enemies. I'll prosper you. Um, he says in the passage, I'll delight in you and you'll delight in me. And you'll have this amazing, blessed life. It's available to you. And God says, I hold it out to you with an open hand. And then in verse 11 is where it gets really interesting. He says this, now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. He says, it's not like it's up in the heavens and somebody has to get on a ladder and bring it back. It's not like it's across the ocean and someone needs to get in a sailboat and retrieve it for us. And then in verse 14, he says, no, it's very near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. God says, it's available. I, I, I'm giving it to you, making it accessible to you. It's not beyond your reach. The life that Jesus promised us in John 10, 10, when he talked about the abundant life, it can actually be mine. Second Peter says, everything I need for life and godliness, he has already given me. I don't have the right to play the victim when it comes to living the life that God wants for me. But I often did. Blaming circumstances or situations or other people for why I wasn't healthy. And I remember how this played out in my season at Saddleback. It was a very fast-paced, high-pressure kind of season in my life. And I sometimes tell people it was both the most intoxicating and toxic season of my life all at the same time. And I remember sometimes when my wife and I, and she would kind of get to her the end of her rope, and we would have one of those hard conversations. Every couple here knows what that's like. And she would say things to me like, you know, I'm so frustrated in our marriage. Like, you're just never here. You're not emotionally available. And the kids aren't getting any time with you. And then maybe you've heard your spouse say this, even when you're here, you're not here. It's like you're checked out. And it would be in that moment, in the kind of defensiveness of that moment, that I would lay down the victim card, which always was this. It's just for a season. Like when we get on the other side of this project or we get this over with or on the other side of Easter, it's going to get better. And in her moments of just sheer frustration, she would stop me in men's sentence and just say, stop it. She goes, it never changes. There's always a reason and a season why you can't be who you're supposed to be. And one of the best days of my spiritual journey was the day that I began to take personal responsibility for the health of my own soul. No one was holding a gun to my head. I had choices that I was making and they were impacting my own journey. So it starts with own it, take responsibility. The second big pillar for me is learning to be aware of the toxins that are in your life. Toxins that poison your soul. So let's assume that you go home tonight and you start not feeling very well. You wake up Monday morning and you decide to go to the the emergency clinic and you walk in and, you know, you fill out the paperwork, give them your insurance card. You sit in the waiting room. They call you back. You go to the little examination room. You sit there for a few minutes and pretty soon the doctor walks through the door. And as he walks through the door, he introduces himself and then he just pulls out his prescription pad and he starts writing you a prescription. You go, wait a minute, doc. I haven't even told you what's wrong. There's no way you could know what the prescription should be until you know 
what's actually going on with me. Until you diagnose me, you can't really write a prescription. And I think one of the parts or pieces of our spiritual journey is dealing with some of the broken places, diagnosing what's going on inside of us, where we are poisoned, where there are toxins floating around in our soul, and learning to deal with those. And here's a lesson I wish I had learned earlier on in my life. Some of the very things that will give you the appearance of success and people will applaud in your life are things that can wreck your soul. Having a strong work ethic and getting a lot done is a good thing until it becomes drivenness in your life and you become consumed by your drivenness and you neglect your soul and your your most important relationships. Or ambition, a dream, a vision that God's given you, it's wonderful when it's controlled by God and governed by the Holy Spirit. But when my ego takes over and now all of a sudden that vision is about me and I'm finding my significance in that ambitious dream, then it's unhealthy. Or, or here's one I know very well. Being good with people is a great quality until you begin to live for and find your identity in the approval of everybody else. And then it becomes toxic. And, and there are two kinds of toxins. I, one are environmental toxins. They're just in our culture. They're around us. Consumerism, materialism, the constant use of technology. They're not going to go away. The speed of life around here, it's not going to change. But you and I better manage it. But more insidious are the internal toxins. The things that have been floating around in my bloodstream and in in my soul, maybe from the time I hit this planet because of stuff that was in my past or in my family. And it may be that some of the hard work that some of us have to do is letting the Holy Spirit probe around and dig around on some things in our lives that are broken and that need to be healed and need to be repaired Things like image management and personal out-of-control ambition or anger or feelings of worthlessness, approval addiction, deep insecurity. Again, for me, one of those was drivenness. And for years, I tried to deal with my drivenness by managing it and tweaking my calendar. So let me explain. When my life would feel out of control, here's what I would think to myself. If I could just get a better handle on my calendar, if I could just work smarter, I would be able to get everything done and also give priority to my key relationships. It never worked. And it wasn't until just a few years ago that I feel like God began to lead me to ask a question about my drivenness, and the question was this. So Lance, what's behind that? Like, why are you so driven? Why Can you not say no? Why do you live beyond your limits? Why do you care so deeply about what everybody thinks of you? What is that broken place in you? And I still struggle with that, but it's better. And the Holy Spirit's been shining the light on it. I remember just about a month ago, I was preaching in Houston and I did this message on prayer And I walked off of the platform and they had a little room between services, you know, where the pastor could sit and pray and go over his notes and get a cup of coffee or something. And when I walked in the room, I picked up my iPhone and on my iPhone, you know, on my uh, screen, it shows any text messages that have come in. And I noticed this first text message and it wasn't anybody I knew because it wasn't their name. It was just their phone number. And here's what the text message said right after I preached, weak and predictable. And I want to tell you, in a nanosecond, all of my insecurities rushed to the surface. 
my people-pleasing, anxiety, uh, man. And I opened my phone to read the rest of the text message, and then it dawned on me what had happened. During my message, I asked people to write down the one or two words that describe their prayer life. (laughs) So it says, weak and predictable. Hey, great message today. Thanks for the encouragement. And I'm thinking to myself, could you have started with that? But I suspect you have scripts and things that are broken places, toxins that you continue to work on that God is healing, but it takes time and there's a journey with that. Well, there's a third anchor. Take personal responsibility, be aware of these toxins and broken places in us. The third one is you've got to learn how to create space in your life. Now, I know that you as a church get this. It's something you guys talk about. But I I don't know that we can talk about it too much because the gravitational pull toward busyness and hurry in our culture is incessant, right? And before we know it, it's like cleaning out your garage or your closet. You wake up a month later and it's just cluttered again. And that's the way it is with our time. I don't know if you remember, but in 2010, Toyota had a huge problem in this country with stuck accelerators. And that's become sort of a metaphor for me of how most of us tend to live our lives. Pedal all the way down, going as fast as we can. Adrenaline is our hormone of choice. The velocity and speed of our lives continues to speed up. And we as Christians can even rationalize it because after all, we're doing it for Jesus. And we've been scammed into believing that this insane, out of control pace of life is simply the price tag of the good life. And everything in our life gets consumed. And I confess to you, I'm a hurrier. I can't even begin to tell you how many times my kids through the years would have, you know, heard me say in an irritated voice, hurry up. Or how many times I've looked up and my wife is five steps behind me. And she looks at me and says, are you going to walk with me or in front of me? And I'm thinking, well, that depends on how fast you go. But... But I've been married a long time and I don't say that. Um, (laughs) Or how many times someone has been telling me a story and honestly on the inside I'm thinking to myself, is this going anywhere? Like does this have a destination? Are you going to land this plane? (laughs) I've actually been thinking about starting a support group for compulsive hurriers. Would some of you like to join? Yeah. Yeah. Here's the good news, our meetings won't last long, because we got stuff to do, right? But you know what I'm learning the hard way? The quality of your life has everything to do with the space in your life. It's not about filling up every single second. And it's contrary to so many of our family values and cultural values, because all of our lives we've been taught to go harder and go faster without any regard to our limits. But let me just be really clear. You cannot live life at warp speed without warping your soul. And you cannot follow Jesus in a hurry. Space and slow are friends to your spiritual health. One of my favorite chapters about this really to me is Mark chapter one and I can relate because in Mark chapter one, Jesus has this incredibly busy day of ministry. He teaches in the synagogue. He casts out a demon in the church service. He goes to Peter's house 
So there's the whole thing about being around people and entertaining and hospitality and having meals together. And then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And as if that were not a full day of ministry, the Bible says this. That night they brought to his house everybody in town who was sick and demon-possessed. Now that feels like a busy day. And Jesus goes to bed, and the Bible says in Mark 1.35, the next morning, while it was dark, very early in the morning, Jesus got up and he left. And I read that and I go, well, that makes sense to me. He should get up earlier than everybody else. He's the son of God. He's only got three years to, to launch this public ministry, right? <coughs> he, he should be out there getting it done. But it doesn't say he went out to do more ministry. It says he went out to a solitary place. And when the disciples finally come and interrupt his time with the father, they say, hey, everybody's looking for you. And if you're codependent, you love those words. And Jesus says, yeah, we're not going back to that village. We're going to new villages to preach the gospel. And what is implicitly clear in the passage is this, that Jesus got his next set of instructions in that quiet place. And I think maybe one of the reasons I have such a difficult time at times discerning the voice of God, hearing his instruction is because I'm so busy. There's no space. There's no quiet. Every, everything is filled with noise. And I remember when I first started learning to practice Sabbath, I hated it. Because even when I was slowing down on the outside internally, I was still going a million miles an hour. It felt to me like I was a car that was in park but had the accelerator all the way to the floor and my RPMs were still redlining. And it's taking me time to learn to really slow down, to embrace it, to see it's, it's part of my formation and it's, it's being with God and not, and on Sabbath, I'm not Lance the pastor, I'm not Lance the provider, I'm not Lance the replenished guy. On Sabbath, I'm just a child of God. And to sit in that and receive it and have the space to let God restore me is a wonderful gift that I'm learning to embrace. So Thomas More says it like this. The vessel in which soul making takes place is an inner container scooped out by reflection and wonder. So his, his analogy is your life is like a bucket and that bucket is filled with all kinds of stresses and responsibilities and marriage and friendships and work and financial problems and getting the car fixed and your life is just overflowing. That bucket's overflowing with all those things. And what Thomas More is saying is that it, it's in solitude and quiet and space that it's like God takes a scoop and he removes some of that stuff out so that now there's actually space in your bucket to just be with God, to just hear from God. And if you and I are going to be on this path of health, it's going to be because we create space in our lives. Well, let me give you this last thing as we finish up. Last pillar. So personal responsibility, being aware of the broken places, the poisons that course through the soul, of, the vein of my soul, and then create space. And finally, and this is simple. It's Christianity 101. It's what we want to teach people day one of following Christ. And it's this. To really live from that healthy place, you must integrate the authentic practice of spiritual disciplines. It's those mechanisms and means in your life by which you stay connected in your union and communion with God. Because over time, it is very easy to let your work for God replace your being with God. And so learning to fast and pray 
and have unhurried times in scripture and solitude and personal retreat and Sabbath and all those things that make me healthy. Not, not to check off a box, not to get God to like me or love me, but as a, as a way of just keeping my relationship fresh and my connection to the vine vibrant and real, I've got to figure out how to put those into my life and make space for them. Um, so again, just a, kind of a word picture. When I first became a Christian and got excited about Jesus and I loved Jesus and couldn't wait to spend time with him and nurture my relationship with him. And of course, because I loved Jesus, I wanted to serve him. And I felt called to ministry and I took on, you know, being a pastor of a church and began to be consumed with building this church, building up the bride, impacting our world, sharing the gospel. And I don't remember exactly when it happened, but there was a moment when the gift of Jesus and the box of ministry changed places. And I began to be all about the box, all about service, all about you know, growing and building the church and doing ministry and just got disconnected from the very one I said I was doing it for. And so I think it's healthy for us just to be reminded that at the end of the day, your highest calling in life is to love Jesus. I don't know if you know the name John Wooden, but um, John Wooden was a basketball coach, college basketball coach with the UCLA Bruins many years ago. Won like 10 national championships, won 84 games without being defeated. This guy's a legend. And one day, Rick Riley, long after Coach Wooden had retired, sits down to do an interview with him. And the longer he interviews him, the more impressed and enamored he is with this guy who's a legend. And at one point in the interview, Rick just looks at Coach Wooden and says, boy, I hope you never die. We need guys like you in the world of sports and basketball. And Coach Wooden kind of chuckled and he said, well, thanks, Rick. He said, but you know, I'm really not afraid to die. He goes, it's my only chance to be reunited with her. And Rick said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm talking about my wife, Nellie, who we were married for 53 years before she died of cancer. And he said, I miss her greatly. And so then he told Rick about a practice he had, that on the 21st day of the month, he would sit down at his desk in his bedroom and he would pull out a piece of stationery because the 21st was the anniversary of her death. And he would write her a love letter every month on the 21st. Talk about how much he loved her, how much he missed her, how much he cherished the memories they shared together, and how much he couldn't wait to be reunited with her. And then he would sign the letter, fold it up, put it on the corner of his desk. And at the time of this interview, there were 200 letters sitting on the corner of that desk. And here's what I want you to see, that long after his career was over, long after basketball and all the spotlight and the hoopla of sports had passed him by, he was meaningfully connected to a relationship that he loved. And he had a regular practice that kept his heart engaged and in love with that relationship. And that's what disciplines do for us. You know, I'm 55 I get it. There's more of life in the rear, rear view mirror than there is in the windshield for me. And I think when you get to be the age, you start thinking about what's really important and what's going to happen after your career's over and all that. Because the truth is, someday, all of us are going to turn in our, our badge. We're going to turn in our computer. Someone else is going to take our office. They're going to throw our business cards in the trash. Someone brighter, quicker, younger, smarter, and with hair is going to take your job. <laughs> 
But if you and I have been making it about a relationship with Jesus, it'll be okay. In fact, take you back to Deuteronomy 30, the very end of the chapter says this, just six words. He says, for the Lord is your life. And that's the reminder I want to leave you with today. That Jesus is your life. He really is the center of it all. He is everything. And if we will make it about him, it'll be okay. I'm going to ask our worship team to come back. We're going to sing a song to kind of close the service. But I want us just to bow our heads right now. And and for you to sit quietly for just a moment. How is God coming to you right now? Is there anything that the Holy Spirit is just gently nudging you with right now in this moment that you need to pay attention to? That's about your soul and where you are and that in the quietness of this space, you would listen and respond. Father, we thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that you're real, that we are in relationship with you. Lord, you are our life. Thank you for these precious people, Lord, in this kind of busy, crazy world we live in. May we find the ways to be on that journey with you, to keep our soul healthy, to to take responsibility, to be aware of those broken places, to let you begin to redeem and heal those things, to create space in the middle of busy lives, and then, Lord, to regularly practice those things that draw us close to you and build our relationship because you are our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite the prayer teams to to come forward. The question, of course, is, you know, it's a tremendous message, you know, about the soul. and, And the question really is, where's your soul? I love the line. He said, many things that make you a success in the world will wreck your soul. And sometimes our, our soul gets wrecked in a moment. An event happens and we just make a decision to go down a road of bitterness or anger. And we just, our, our, our soul begins to wilt. For others of us, our, our soul over time slowly begins to disintegrate and wilt kind of like a flower. And so as we close here, I, I, I want us to just take a moment, and we have space in this room right now. It's, it's wonderful that you're here. Do you realize this is creating space to meet God? It's fantastic. And, uh, but it's a, it's a moment for God to touch your soul. And maybe it's gotten wilted or it's not where it needs to be. And this is a chance to basically receive from God a touch, a healing, a deliverance, a, a, a fire sunshine and water to cause that soul to come back to life and i love the line now choose life moses says that now choose life and you can you can't i love this line you can't live life at warped speed without warping your soul and some of us our our lives are 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 out of control we got too much going on and our soul is shrinking so as we close here i want to ask you a question invite you really to come forward to receive from god is it I look at the end of a service, it's really the most important time of the service. The question is, what do you do with what God's saying and what God's doing right now? And so, if your soul is shrinking, 
for whatever reasons, there's not enough space in your life, I want to invite you to, to not run out of here, but take a moment and turn around and turn to God. Now, we got the Lord's table over here to your right. You can come and eat and drink of Christ. We've got some prayer teams over here to your left. And, uh, and maybe just kneel at the altar, whatever you need to do here, to just kind of return back to God. And let him do in your soul what you can't do in and of yourself. And that's touch you. All right, so we're going to close. We always close with, with, a, with kind of a blessing. You know, we get a lot of curse. People curse, a, curse us a lot. I get cursed by people when I drive. I tend to get distracted, you know. A lot of cursing goes on. But this is a place where you receive blessing. So we want you to leave with a blessing so that you can be a blessing. So open up your hands up like this kind of towards heaven. And kind of close your eyes. And, you know, the music's playing. And music is such a gift, isn't it? Worship. It kind of music lifts our hearts towards heaven to set our heart on things above. And the love of God surrounds you right now. The presence of God surrounds you. And you may not even be aware of it. It doesn't matter. It's still, the the love of God is still a force and a power and an alive Holy Spirit around you. And he wants to flood your being with his life. Your hands open, just you're letting go of all your cares. You're opening up space. You take a deep breath. Be still, says the Lord. Be still and know that I'm God. Just take a deep breath as you breathe in and out. Just be so aware of the presence of God in this room and the God who gives you breath. So may the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. And may his face shine upon you. May may he open up your heart to feel and receive his face shining upon you. And may his love and power fill every crevice of your human body. May your soul, which may be wilted, receive sunshine from heaven. May the Holy Spirit water your soul now. May God cause the dead parts of you to come alive now. And may you be filled with him. May he enlarge your soul to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And and may you leave this place and offer the life of God out of you to those whom you will encounter. May your life be the gift that God's intended for the world around you. So be be blessed as you leave this place. And may the presence of Jesus just rest upon you. And may you be like a warm receptacle receiving of him as you go. So be blessed in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. Have a wonderful day.